breaking news story out of Tennessee. Breaking former news, we have just confirmed that former NFL quarterback Steve McNair is dead. Steve McNair has been found dead. It is clear afternoon. that Steve McNair's death is a homicide. Police officers arrived in response to that call. They found two individuals. Police say McNair had multiple gunshot wounds. At this point, we don't know the circumstances of these shooting deaths. 20-year-old Sahil Kazemi was found nearby. But I understand that she was a friend of McNair's. Cases raised questions about McNair's relationship with her. We'll keep you posted on this development again. Steve McNair found dead today. 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 It's the summer of 2017. Steve McNair has been dead for eight years at this point, and I'm in the infant stages of a podcast about his murder. And I've started talking to Vincent Hill, a former Nashville cop who's been investigating the case on his own. In our first conversation, Vincent tells me that he just got a new tip. Vincent says that a friend of his, an old source in the Nashville Police Department, reached out to confirm something that Vincent has been hearing for some time. It's a rumor that Vincent has been chasing for years. This source tells Vincent that when authorities found Steve McNair dead in his condo on July 4th, 2009, Steve had been castrated and his penis had been stuffed in his mouth. Vincent has heard this story enough times now, and from enough credible sources, that he decides he needs to tell Lucille McNair, Steve's mother. Years ago, Lucille hired Vincent to investigate the case on her behalf, and he still gives her updates from time to time. This is a very difficult thing to have to tell a mother, though, and so Vincent enlists the help of one of Lucille's closest friends, Dr. Alvin Simpson. His friends call him Doc, or Doc Simpson. Vincent had disclosed it to me, and I was trying to make a decision as to whether or not I should share it with Lucille. I don't think that Vincent felt comfortable disclosing that to Lucille. So I said to him, I'll call her and I'll share it with her. He's dead now, so I don't think it would make a difference whether it's true or whether it's false. But I want her to know that there's a rumor out there. Doc Simpson tells Lucille McNair about this castration rumor over the phone. Then Doc goes as far as to suggest that they approach a judge in Mississippi and ask that Steve's body be exhumed so they can confirm that Steve's genitalia are intact. And to this very day, we won't know unless we were to exhume his body and let our physical eyes see. Because I don't have any trust in any of them. I don't have any trust in the medical examiner. I don't have any trust in the uh, detectives or anybody else. And I'm not ruling out anybody in terms of being a participant in the conspiracy to murder Steve. And my feelings won't change where that's concerned. You can tell which side of this dock falls on. When I first started talking to Vincent Hill, I asked him, who else should I talk to you for this story? Doc Simpson was the first person he mentioned. Doc had been invaluable to Vincent's investigation. He had a wealth of knowledge about Steve McNair and the McNair family as a whole. Doc and Steve met back in the early 90s, when Steve was a student at Alcorn State, a small, historically black college in southwest Mississippi, near the Louisiana border. Doc Simpson was a psychology professor there at the time. Doc was the cool professor. He was young, he dressed well, and he drove a flashy car. He spoke with the students as if they were his peers. He'd have them hang out in his office, or he'd have them over his house, where they'd all relax and swim in his pool. Everyone knew that if you needed help with your academics or needed advice in general, you needed to go see Doc Simpson. One of those students was Steve's brother, Tim McNair. I became something kind of like a unofficial mentor. Students who were not even my students 
would come by with different problems. And what I learned from all of that is that the students brought all kind of baggage to school with them, uh, repressed matter, family issues, so forth and so on. And with regard even to academics, when they would go to their advisors and so forth, they didn't get solutions to their problems. I think I became popular among the students because I always found solutions for their problems. Tim was the one who introduced Steve to Doc Simpson. Doc never had Steve as a student, but he served as the faculty advisor to Steve's fraternity, and they hit it off quickly. Soon, Steve started inviting Doc over to the house for holidays, and then on vacations. As Steve went from college to the NFL, Doc was always there at his games, usually right by Lucille's side. Doc and Lucille were close friends. They'd cook together, go shopping together, go to the casino together. Looking back, Doc thinks that Steve brought him into the fold because he thought that Doc would be a good influence on his mother. And Steve probably liked the idea of having a professor around. Doc added a sense of culture, intellect, and gravitas to the McNair family. It developed, I think a lot of the students, including Steve, kind of relied on me for wisdom. They felt comfortable in terms of conversation. And I think that that made the difference in terms of uh, the development of a relationship with Steve, with his other brothers, with his mother and his and the family at large. They just acted as though they had known me for a lifetime. And I felt comfortable with them. I probably spent as much time with Lucille and Steve and the family as I did at my own house. So it was indeed my second home, my Mississippi family. When Steve bought a house for his mother in Mississippi, the ranch as they call it, he had Doc Simpson decorate it. Steve gave Doc an unlimited budget. And so Doc set out to make the ranch look like the governor's mansion. There were Edwardian pieces, um, French provincial. Once I had completed the project of decorating, I said, Steve, how do you like it? He was very devilish. He said, it's just a house, Doc. He really liked it. And his mother said, you know, Steve really likes it. He's not going to let you know that. I said, I know how Steve is. But I think he was very, very proud of the way that that turned out. Doc became like an uncle to Steve, a mentor, a confidant. He was there for a lot of the important moments in Steve's life. Doc was with the McNairs at the ranch for several days around Christmas 2008, the last Christmas Steve was alive. At one point, Doc made a joke in passing that Steve never included him when he played sports with his brothers. And so, on Christmas morning, Steve woke Doc Simpson up early, gave him a game-worn jersey, and threw him passes out in the yard. It was one of the last memories Doc would ever have of Steve. Six months later, on July 4th, 2009, Doc rushed over to the ranch to see Lucille as soon as he found out that Steve had been shot. But I drove 90 miles, literally 100 miles per hour, getting over there to the ranch. And when I drove up, heading into the ranch, you know, you get to Steve's brother's Tim's house before getting to the big house. He was standing out there with his daughter, just looking up in the sky. And when I looked at him, I could just see his eyes were glassy. He didn't want me to see him cry. So I, I just drove away from him. And there were, oh, probably about 50 or 60 guys standing outside with their heads down. It was a very eerie feeling. And then when I walked into the house, Lucille's eyes were red as blood where she had been crying. I said, oh, Lucille, I am so sorry about Steve. We went in the bedroom. 
and she said, Doc, they said it was some 20-year-old girl. I said, well, Lucille, what happened? Well, she said, I learned that. They said that the girl killed him and killed herself. I said, Lucille, was it with Steve's gun? She said, I don't know. And I started asking his brothers and others. They said, well, Doc, we don't know. So maybe two or three days later, they found out that it was not Steve's gun. I said, well, that girl didn't do it. I said, she had access to Steve's gun 24-7. And it's no way that I'll be convinced that she purchased a gun from an ex-con to murder Steve. Doc remembers being at the ranch with Lucille when he saw Vincent Hill on Dateline for the first time. Doc remembers agreeing with a lot of what Vincent had to say. Of all the people in the McNair family circle, Doc's always been the most outspoken. He thinks that the Nashville PD got it wrong. He doesn't think that Jenny Kazemi killed Steve. Nine years later, Doc still doesn't believe it. In our first conversation, Doc asked me, quote, Why not kill him in the shower? Why not kill him upon his arrival to the condo? Why not shoot him when he walked in the door? If you're going to kill yourself, why the overkill? This is a girl who has never shot a gun, who doesn't have her propensity for violence, and she can handle a 9mm, and every shot is a kill shot? Left temple, right temple, heart, lung? Impossible, impossible, impossible. Doc met Vincent Hill somewhere around the fall of 2009, just as Vincent was starting to investigate the case. Eventually, they banded together and formed something of a team. Doc had all the contacts. He knew Lucille. He knew all of Steve's closest friends. He could point Vince in the right direction, tell him who to track down to get to the bottom of what really happened. Last November, I went to visit Doc Simpson in suburban Atlanta. Doc moved there after he resigned from Alcorn State a few years ago. Doc's career in education didn't end on the best terms, but we'll get to that later. Doc is 64 years old now. He's an African-American man of average build who walks with a limp and usually dresses in leisure wear. Doc lives a relatively quiet life now in retirement. He collects antiques, and so his home looks like a museum, every room immaculately decorated. He goes shopping at the Goodwill store, which he refers to as Neiman Marcus. He goes to the casino every now and then, but he's also content spending an afternoon sitting out on his back porch, smoking cigarillos. Doc does have one weekly commitment, He plays the organ at a tiny church about 50 miles outside of Atlanta every Sunday. Doc took me there on two occasions. Each time, there were only about a dozen people in attendance. And I found it impressive how devoted Doc was to this tiny church. Doc's a loyal person, I guess. That's why he's still trying to figure out what happened to Steve. That's why he's working with Vincent Hill. He says that he's doing this for Steve. He wants to find some closure for his friend. After church one day, Doc and I decided to make the six-hour drive to Mississippi so he could introduce me to some of Steve's family and friends, some of the same people he'd introduced to Vincent Hill. We toured Alcorn State. We drove by Steve's old high school, and we stopped by his grave. It's in a meager cemetery on the side of the road, a few miles from where Steve's mother lives. I actually have had dreams and have asked him what happened, and every time he starts to tell me I wake up from the dream. I remember one night he said, Doc, they shot me and he held his shirt up. And perhaps the dream might have um, been a result of looking at the crime scene pictures because I saw two holes in his back. And I 
I said, well, Steve, who did this? And, and as he began to tell me every time, I wake up from the dream. So I, I personally believe that his spirit is still trying to speak. And so that's why I still have this need to know so that his soul can be at rest. Fall of the Titan is brought to you by Robinhood. Robinhood is a vesting app that lets you buy and sell stocks, options, and cryptos, all commission-free. They strive to make the financial services work for everyone, not just the wealthy. Robinhood is a non-intimidating way for stock market newcomers to invest for the first time with true confidence. The app is simple and intuitive, it's got a clear design, and data is presented in an easy-to-digest way. I recently downloaded the Robinhood app, and I found that it's incredibly easy to navigate. Robinhood provides charts and market data that make it easy for me to make an informed decision, and then I can place a trade in just four taps on my phone. The best part is, Robinhood doesn't charge commission fees. Other brokerages charge up to $10 for every trade. Not Robinhood. You can trade stocks and keep all the profits for yourself. Robinhood is giving listeners a free stock, like Apple, Ford, or Sprint, to help build your portfolio. Sign up at titan.robinhood.com. That's titan.robinhood.com. As I started interviewing people on our trip, a portrait of Steve McNair began to emerge. The Steve McNair that Doc Simpson knew. Steve grew up poor in a cramped shack of a house in Mount Olive, Mississippi, the second youngest of five boys. His father was largely absent from his life, and his mother, Lucille, worked the night shift at an electronic component factory. The McNairs were so poor, one person told me, that Steve didn't have a bedroom door. They hung up a sheet instead. From an early age, though, Steve showed talent as a football player. Enough talent that he could build a better life for himself and his family. Steve was often the best athlete on the field. Talking to his former teammates, they sound almost in awe of him. He can make every throw, pick up every first down, escape any situation. He had the perfect nickname, too. Air McNair. Here's how Percy Singleton, one of Steve's receivers in college, described him. You know, he had these huge hands, these huge arms. Uh, he was just a massive athlete. And for him to be playing quarterback was even more impressive. He could take control of the game. I mean, he could he could take control of any game. You know, he had this Jordan-esque type of aura where you could just look into his eyes and you say, okay, we're, we're probably going to win today. Several Division I powerhouse schools showed interest in Steve, but they reportedly wanted him to change positions and play defense. Steve wanted to play quarterback, and so he decided to stay close to home and play at Alcorn State, which sits about 100 miles west of Mount Olive. Soon, people from all around the country started flocking to Alcorn State, this tiny school with a few thousand students, just to see Steve McNair play. That included Floyd Reese, the former Titans general manager who'd eventually draft him. He was remarkable. I mean, I don't know if you've ever been to Alcorn State, but way back when, I mean, there wasn't a lot there. And uh, and there weren't a lot of number one draft choices on his team. And there were Steve was everything. Did everything, led the team, scored the most, ran the most. It, it was a one-man show. He literally carried that whole university on his back. And everybody went there just to see Steve. 
I mean, when you went into town, it was, yeah, you're going to the game. Who you play? It doesn't matter. We're going to go see Steve. Air McNair. We were going to go see Air McNair. Every major news outlet covered him. The New York Times, ESPN, Washington Post, Sports Illustrated put him on the cover. The headline was, Hand Him the Heisman. A few of Steve's classmates even wrote a song dedicated to his Heisman campaign. The way Percy Singleton described it, every game felt like a primetime event. You had people, guys at other schools, at Florida State, you know, guys like Charlie Ward, they were coming to see him play. I remember when we came to play Sam Houston at the time. You know, they were professional athletes. They, they played with the Rockets and played with the Oilers. And, you know, everywhere we would go, there was some, some celebrity coming to see him play because everyone had heard about him. Not only was he a star athlete, he was a smooth operator, a charmer. And that played well into the crowds of women who were now flocking to him. Steve was apparently that way as far back as grade school. That's how Katina Vazell remembered him. She's the mother of Steve's first child. That was back in, I think it was like seventh grade. He wrote me a little letter and put it in my locker. <laughs> it's kind of funny. Can't remember everything he said, but I know he wrote me a little letter. And we just started seeing each other. What kind of boyfriend was Steve like in high school? <laughs> funny. Silly. And by every little thing. But um, he's a good guy, of course, you know. Guys are guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, what do you mean by that? Well, Steve, I was his only, I guess, girlfriend or whatever. He had his little flings or whatever. Just after Steve graduated high school, Katina gave birth to a baby boy. I know I was pregnant, and I had him in September. We graduated in May. And after that, he went off to college signed the yearbook, and I told him, when you go to college, you're going to just forget about me. He was like, first he was like, well, I'm not going to go to college. I'm going to stay and help you with the with the baby. I was like, no, you go ahead and go to college. So he did. I told him he was gonna, the first semester, he was all right, I guess. But then we just went our separate ways. By then, Steve had already met Sheila McNair. Yes, Steve McNair started seeing Sheila McNair. No relation. Sheila will become the mother of his second child. Oh, God. We was, <laughs> this is how I met Steve. My lolly came to play McGee in basketball, which I had already graduated. And I was in the gym, and I just happened to look, and I was like, oh, you know. <laughs> but, you know, I didn't never think that. So my friend girl said, I'm going I'm to you know, hook y'all up. From that day, we met up. But, you know, I never knew nothing about him playing football or nothing. We had, I had went down there and visited him and everything. You know how I knew he was he was playing football, he was good at football? I was watching news one day, and they did something from my lolly on TV. It was something about the football. And I seen him. I was like, he play football. I don't even know. I knew nothing about it. But he was such a gentleman. He was very nice and everything. Ultimately, their relationship couldn't survive Steve's rising stardom either. Yeah, we end up dating. We end up dating. Um, I went to Alcorn for a semester that I left because I was a jealous type. <laughs> the two grew together in tandem. Steve's fame and the number of women vying for his attention. Steve was popular and the girls around the campus and, and girls from other universities were specifically coming on the campus of Alcorn 
just to see Steve McNair. They would throw rocks up to his window to get his attention. And I guess he, as any other young man, would be flattered by all of these girls being excited about him. I don't know necessarily that he had any type of relationships with all of them, but but they certainly were after him. Steve played along with the ladies too, though. Jerry Fletcher, the backup quarterback at Alcorn, saw it firsthand. One particular play I remember when we was in Southern and they had a lady over there. I guess she was from the news. Um, she was real, real pretty. And Steve told me, he said, Fletch, I'm going to get a good look at her because I'm going to run out of bounds. And she kind of get a close look at her. And I promise you, the next play, somehow he ran out of bounds and ran right, almost ran over and looked the dead in the face. That's one, one thing that stuck out to me. When Steve was a senior in 1994, he finished third in the Heisman voting. That was the year when the attention reached a whole new level. 1994, we beat Jackson State. And we left out of the stadium. And me, him, and a couple guys, we got into a limo. After the Jackson State ball game, I didn't even know Steve was going to have no limo, but evidently he arrived. And we had a limo, and we went to this club where they had, they knew we was coming. So they had the VIP section. And I can tell you, it was over 200 women in line there just to shake his hand, hugging him, kissing him on the forehead. It was just, and I'm looking like, we looking at each other like, what in the world is this? Then, the Houston Oilers picked Steve, number three overall, in the NFL draft. The Oilers would later move to Nashville and become the Tennessee Titans. And that's where Steve became a bona fide star, a household name. He led the Titans to within one yard of winning Super Bowl 34 in January 2000. Then he shared the MVP award in 2003 with Peyton Manning. Steve became the face of the Titans franchise for nearly a decade. But Steve wasn't just a great quarterback. He was a great African-American quarterback. He had risen to the highest levels of the NFL, not from Alabama or from USC. He came from Alcorn State. I think you can argue that his fame was elevated because of what he represented for young black quarterbacks everywhere. Bryant Mix was another witness to Steve's meteoric rise. Bryant played defensive end at Alcorn and got drafted by the Oilers one year after Steve did. He hung out with Steve a lot during his early NFL days first in Houston, and then in Tennessee. I met a lot of people through him for stars, you know, different people. Like, we met, you know, Robert Ory and Akeem Olajuwon and Clyde Drexler and all those guys like that. You know, I met them just based off just being with Steve. And all of them treated him like he was God. I'm like, wow. And that was amazing, you know. I'm like, wow, man, you know. Y'all guys are already there. We just getting started. But, you know, he just, he had something that everybody enjoyed being around. I asked Bryant, what was it like going to the club with Steve? Oh, God, it was unreal. And, man, it was some of the most beautiful women I've seen ever before. And sometimes, you know, when we went to these different cities, God, they would be flocking at those hotels like it was unreal. And I'm talking about from every city we went in, they would be there and just throwing stuff at him. There was one issue, though. Steve was married. Two years after he was drafted, even though he already had two children by two different women, Steve married Michelle Cartwright, a classmate of his from Alcorn State. She had been a member of the Golden Girls, the dance team that performed at halftime of the football games. 
Michelle had been there during Steve's rise to fame. She had seen the way that people reacted just to meeting her husband. Obviously, due to the circumstances of his death, the public knows now that Steve engaged in extramarital affairs. I wondered, though, how much did Michelle know? Here's what Doc Simpson told me. Michelle was aware of Steve's indiscretions, and a lot of times she would talk about them and so forth. I think she was a little bit annoyed, and should have been, but at the same time, that's the price you pay for being married to a celebrity. Her situation was not unique at all. Most of these celebrity males are going to be tempted to do a lot of things. Dr. Simpson was in a unique position within the McNair family. He was not an immediate family member, but he was one of the few people Steve would actually listen to, so he can act as an impartial mediator when family issues arose. Lucille would even ask Doc to talk to Steve sometimes when she wanted to send him a message, if Steve was drinking too much, for example. When Michelle was upset about something Steve was doing, she would go to Doc too. Doc had known Michelle since she and Steve had started dating back in college. There wasn't really anything Doc could do to help her, though, when it came to Steve's infidelity. Now, my whole position on it was that the fact that Steve was a celebrity and he was an attractive man, all kind of women were going to be pulling after him. Married women, unmarried women, and there would be no age barriers in terms of that. And young men are going to be flattered whether they carry out an act or not. It's like, wow, she looks like Beyonce and she wants me. When you have money, you suddenly become more attractive than ever before. And I think he was flattered by that. Doc told me that Steve would go as far as to pick fights with Michelle so that he could leave the house. Then if Michelle ever talked back, Doc says Steve would respond, quote, you want to get a divorce? He used it almost as a threat. I tried reaching out to Michelle McNair to see if she would speak to me for this podcast. I even sent her lawyer a list of topics I wanted to discuss. But through her lawyer, she declined to comment. Another person caught in the middle of Steve and Michelle's fights was Chris Wall, Steve's bodyguard. Chris says that he worked for Steve for about 10 years. He was one of the bodyguards who had shadowed Steve whenever he went out and about. Chris saw a lot of things that Doc Simpson probably didn't see. Steve's a grown man, and my job was not to instruct him or baby him or teach him anything. My job was just to make sure whatever he decided to do that that I was there to make sure that, uh, that he was taken care of. Relationship-wise, like I said, I, I'm not going to confirm or deny any relationship that he had outside of Kissimmee. Were there, had there been rumors about certain things? Absolutely. Chris agreed with Doc that Michelle was aware Steve was sleeping around. Absolutely, he said. It even got to the point where Michelle would ask Chris to report back to her on where Steve was going at night. Chris would turn to Steve and say, quote, Your girl is calling me, wanting to know what you're doing. Y'all need to get your shit together. Her and her sister, it was almost like uh, funny at times. Uh, they would go out and uh, Steve would be at one spot and they would go to another spot and they would try to find out where we were so they didn't wouldn't be at the same spot that we were. And it was kind of a, a joke at first. Then it got to the point where, well, you know, every time Steve went out somewhere, wanted to know where he was, you know, when he's going to be home. And, you know, there was a lot of that going on years ago. And and I, and I told, like I said, I told both of them, um, I think at different times, that I'm not a babysitter. I mean, I'm not going to report back. 
for either one of you. I'm not going to sit here and and do a monologue on who's doing what and where. I mean, y'all grown people, and, and and I'm not a counselor, but uh, at the same time, you know, I work for Steve McNair. Evidently, Steve was unhappy with his marriage. He was so unhappy that a few years before he died, Steve decided to rent a condo in downtown Nashville where he could get away from his wife. The condo was at 105 Leah Avenue, just a few blocks away from Broadway and all the honky-tonk bars in Nashville, and about a mile from the Titan Stadium. By all accounts, this condo he rented was not a lavish place. There was a living room and a kitchen on the first floor and two bedrooms upstairs. Each level was about 600 square feet, which is small, even for a New York City apartment. Steve apparently didn't do much to decorate either. On the counter, there was a sign that read, quote, never be broke money. But there wasn't much else. It didn't really look like someone lived there. But the condo served its ultimate purpose. It was a private place where Steve could take his mistresses. Notice I said mistresses, plural. Listen to the Nashville police question Wayne Neely a friend who shared the condo with McNair. What about uh, girlfriend? Do I know any of them personally? Do you names know or anything? Don't know any of them. Do you know how many of them? Oh, five, six, I don't know. You ever met any of them? I've seen them, but don't never like, physically meet them, like shake their hand up, no. Seen them. Basically, that's what he got the apartment for, is what I'm gathering. Yes, sir. Is there anything you can think of that, that, that hadn't been asked you today that, that would be something that, that may help lead us in a direction or something that, that you think we ought to know? I mean, if it's Steve, I mean, we got to know everything. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I watch a lot of women. I watch a lot of pussy. And I'm, I'm, I'm being ugly. It's just the way it was. I mean, he was, he was lucky. Doc Simpson saw all of this happening. Steve sleeping around, getting a little too cavalier with his personal life and he decided to say something. Steve and Doc were standing outside a hotel in Nashville, and fans were approaching Steve, asking for autographs. One woman actually pulled down her blouse and asked for Steve to sign her breast. I said, remember Kobe Bryant? I said, he's very wealthy, and he could have flown any girl in. He didn't need to get with a stranger. And I said, and you see how it damaged his character by participating in that. I said, you don't want that. But again, as I said, when you're young and you're flattered by different come-ons by women, that happens. So uh, it's just unfortunate. But that's why I feel so certain that perhaps he had had some type of indiscretion with somebody's wife. That's why Doc Simpson thinks it's entirely plausible that Steve was found castrated with his penis shoved in his mouth. Doc worries that Steve slept around with the wrong woman, and that's the reason he wound up dead. Doc feels guilty now that he wasn't more assertive all those years ago, that he didn't speak up more. He really kind of relied on my wisdom, and uh, I hate so badly that he didn't follow my advice regarding those women, because I had, I had warned him. Uh, I warned him about Kobe Bryant and that episode, and and he was, he was lying to me. Doc, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I said, yes, you are. Steve had been apparently living this way for several years, when one day, he started flirting with a Dave & Buster's waitress named Jenny Kazami, the woman who would allegedly murder him six months later. Still to come on Fall of a Titan. 
So I pull up my phone, I type in Steve McNair, and it pulls up his picture. And I come back and I'm like, oh my God, that's Steve McNair. Oh my God, she's dating a football player. There was nothing in that conversation that would indicate that she was going to take her own life, much less somebody else's. They didn't even arrest the 20-year-old girl. Oh my God. 20-year-old girl shouldn't be out drinking and driving. I'm not drinking. Then why not take a risk to it? Because it's not necessary. 